Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Rosalind Malmud is a psychologist in Southeast Florida. For many years, she has worked with people who suffer from eating disorders, and today she's kind enough to sit and talk to us a little bit about one type of eating disorder known as the binge eater. Dr. Malmud, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, you're very welcome. What seems to be the etiology of binge eating? Is there a psychological profile that tends to apply to those who develop it? Is it an impulse disorder, a self-image disorder? associated with depression? I think all of those would fit under the psychological part. You want to make sure that people understand the differentiation of binge eating versus bulimia. Just to start with a diagnosis, eating more rapidly than normal, eating until feeling uncomfortably full, eating large amounts of food when not feeling physically hungry, eating alone because of being embarrassed by how much one is eating, feeling disgusted with oneself, depressed, or guilty afterward. Now, sometimes people will binge and then they will use bulimic type behaviors. By that I mean they'll exercise to excess, they'll take laxatives, or they'll make themselves purge. So a mild binge would be one to three episodes per week and moderate can be four to seven. You can have severe or extreme, which would be maybe twice a day. But they do it alone. Is this generally a secret disorder of sorts? Well, it could start by eating in the restaurant with friends. And you're eating a full meal, but you'll come home by yourself and continue to eat. And you're not hungry. It's just once you started eating, you can't stop yourself. You're not tasting the food. You're more inhaling the food. You can eat 5,000 calories in one setting, for example. It's almost not enjoying the food. Can I say that? Well, it's really just inhaling it. People might have their favorite food. Where does this come from? Why why do people do this? When you meet somebody and you begin to suspect that there isn't binge eating, what do you look for in their background, in their psychological profile? Well, first thing you look for is were they reinforced as a child with food? You know, say they did well on a test. Do you say, oh, let's go out for ice cream? Or do you say, let's go to the store and buy a new video game? Or let's go buy a new coloring book? Or let's go to a movie? What is it that one, the family has used? And not just as a reward, but also if they had a bad day, is that what's done? Oh, let me get you some ice cream. So the person learns. And a lot of times, binge eaters will eat foods that they associate with those childhood events. So that could be macaroni and cheese. And I don't mean good macaroni and cheese. I mean the kind from the box because that's what mommy or daddy would have made them when they were a child. I had someone that would binge on Halloween candy, you know, those little triangle ones with the orange and white. Mm -hmm. And it's not that she liked them, but that's what she associated because that came from her childhood. Can I go so far as to say, and correct me if I'm overextending this, that there is a tremendous amount of symbolism in eating and the type of food that's consumed? Oh, absolutely. How often do you see this? Well, 3.5% of American women, about 2% of adult men might have this binge eating disorder. That's interesting because generally speaking, most people associate this with women and not men. Well, 3.5 versus 2. But I have men that do this. They have foods that they would not normally eat. And then they're at a party and there might be some chips and dips and they'll eat, but they're not eating excess because they're in a public place. They will stop and pick up a huge bag of chips or whatever it is and come home and eat that. I had one man buy three gallons of ice cream 
you know, after being out with people, and he went through the ice cream that night. What about the age group? Is this, again, we, we most commonly associate this with girls in their teenage. Now we know it's a lot of men as well. But girls in their teenage years and maybe in their 20s, do you see it going into the 40s and 50s and 60s? Sure, but you're talking about different parts. With adolescents, their brains aren't, you know, completely formed yet. We have all that research. And that part of the brain that has judgment and self-control and executive functioning is just not all the way up there. So they might say, I shouldn't eat more of this, but they can't stop themselves. And a lot of times when they hit about 24, 25, they're able to use more judgment and a little more control. What about someone who's in their 50s and 60s? Have you seen people at, in that age group who have eating disorders? Oh, sure, because I hate to say this, but when they try to restrict too much, they have a lot of different diet programs, and say they should be having about 1,600 calories a day, they'll try to drop down to 1,200 or less. They'll try to skip breakfast. So when they're dieting, restricting like that, when they start to eat, they just lose control. So they'll come in and say, oh, I had a couple bad days last week. I was so good on Monday and Tuesday, and then I lost it on Wednesday. Well, they lost it on Wednesday because they were physically hungry. So they don't have a, a, a way to balance this out. Right. That's why when you're treating somebody, you want to work with a team. You want to have a psychologist. You want to have a psychiatrist on board. They definitely would want to have a registered dietitian. And I happen to have worked in day treatment centers and have several residential programs. So I love and encourage people to join groups, Weight Watchers, other kinds of groups where they're with other people that share some but not all of the same pattern so they get to discuss it in a format that doesn't feel so judgmental. Is there a good success? success rate when this is done as an outpatient because it sounds as if there is a tremendous amount of monitoring that needs to be done. You know, I'm going to give it about a 30 or 40 percent, but that's if the person comes in and they're coming in self-motivated. So it can't be the adolescent that's being pushed there by a parent and it can't be someone that's being pushed there by a spouse where there's a lot of, say, verbal abuse, you know, like about you should lose weight and a lot of that kind of stuff. That doesn't really help someone because then they're kind of torn between not really wanting to treat the person that's being, I have to say, verbally abusive to them. But if they come in with self-motivation and they're willing to really work with what patterns can work, what would be a good eating pattern, that's much higher for success rates. You use the, the term abuse. Do a lot of these people have some sort of abusive, something abusive in their childhood that seems to be almost overly common in the etiology of binge eating? Well, that's a twofold question. So we go back to reinforcement. So if they are not the brightest kid or they're not the best athlete and they get judged for poor performance, they might turn to food for comfort and for solace. And that's a little different than when I was talking about the abuse that's directed at their weight. Do the majority of people who have binge eating have self-image problems? Do they see themselves as heavier than indeed they are? Unfortunately, yes, they do have self-image problems. And I agree with you. They definitely do see themselves often as heavier than they really are. That's part of what you want to do in therapy. You want to point out all the other ways in which they're very talented, where they're very good to other people. You want to build up their respect for themselves, their coping abilities, and you really want to validate them as a person. Do people just outgrow this after they mature for a bit? No. I have people in their 70s that are still just as concerned about what 
they call good food and bad food, and they really punish themselves if they're overweight. They will not go to some public or family events. They don't want to have people see them a little overweight. It would seem that maybe this is a long-term, maybe even lifelong treatment. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Even if you get... Well, let me, let me step back. People will have in mind the weight that they ought to be, and you have to tell them that might have been a great weight for them when they're 20, but now they're 40. They might need to adjust that weight. And even if the doctor says you should be 125, if they get to 130, for them that might be a really nice plateau. And they have to stay in that plateau. It's not something where, okay, you've climbed the mountain, now you're done. You're going to have to stay with this for the rest of your life, developing the good eating habits. It almost sounds obsessive, like it's an obsessive-compulsive disorder. Am I overgeneralizing? For some people, it is. For some people, the patterns that I'll see is Monday through Friday, they only eat completely healthy food. But on the weekend, they go out for dinner and they might allow themselves to have some fish with a little bit of butter or almonds, or they might allow themselves to have a little piece of a dessert. So I see that as being very restrictive. And others are worse. They'll have, these are good foods, these are bad foods. And they grow up with the idea of these are empty calories and these are foods you should never touch. It sounds also from the way you describe things that the role of medication in treating someone with one of these eating disorders, I'm not going to say that it's not potentially a part of the treatment team to use the concept, but this is much more psychological, much more cognitive, much more perhaps even psychodynamic in trying to figure out where this is coming from and how to control it. Would you agree with that? I do. I would encourage people to try one of the antidepressant medications. They will be concerned because they read the side effects and they'll say, oh, but this one will help you to gain weight. What they don't realize is if they're binging a minimum of three times a week, which is what that's the minimum criteria to have a diagnosis of a binge eater, they don't realize that if we can do something that reduces their normal level of stress and anxiety and the way they cope with such, that they won't be Bitching as much. Interesting point and a very valid point. They're using ADHD meds now also for this. And that's to control the, the appetite? And have you seen many patients go through this? It's an interesting concept, but what's your impression of people who are taking these to control their binge eating? I've had such few experiences, but say in the past month, I had someone that would use one of the ADH meds. And I felt it was very similar to someone that had a very restrictive diet because when she would come off the meds, she might overeat. I just think it gave her a way to restrict. Interesting way to, to, to put it. Just out of curiosity, when we talk about the notion of bulimia, we often know that after the people, uh, after a person has eaten extensively, they vomit, they use diuretics, they use laxatives. Is that part of binging as well? It can be, definitely. Does this run in families? Is there a sense of that? Oh, I think so. For some families, eating a tremendous amount of food is considered acceptable. By acceptable, then it could be confusing. I'm agreeing. I feel like they leave that house and all of a sudden, in their family, it was acceptable to be overweight. And then they go out to the real world and they're finding that it's really hurting them. They're tired. They're, you know, they, they, they run into a lot of physical problems. They run into some social judgment. You've done this many, many times in your life. What are some of the, shall we say, major challenges in working? 
working with someone who's a binge eater. It's so unfortunate that a lot of people base their whole self-worth on what they look like by the end, their weight is their primary concern. So they go through their whole lives saying, oh, I need to lose this 5 pounds, this 25 pounds, this 50 pounds. They don't focus on everything else that they're doing in life. So that's the part that you said is obsessive. It's like one of the first things they think about from the time they wake up. Years back, we did a whole study at Wellesley, and these girls had diet as a more important criteria for their overall self-esteem than being a good student or having a boyfriend. That was really sad because you're dealing with some of the brightest women in this country and they were still putting the weight as a top criteria. Is that a cultural thing? Is it a Western society thing? It's extended around the world. And one of the things you try to talk to people about is back in their grandparents' age, people weren't wearing size double zeros and twos. People were wearing size 10 through 16. The norm for women was a little larger than it is now. You know, think of the early pictures of Marilyn Monroe. Very true. And when they look, when they've done studies showing the different weights for the Miss America to the present day, you look back at the older beauty pageants, women were just larger than they are now. Wasn't there recently a discussion about France, about models having to not be so thin? Yes, Wait, absolutely. I don't remember the details of that. They set a, a minimal standard of weight. They didn't want to be any thinner than that. How young might this go? Will it start as an eight-year-old, a twelve-year-old? Is there any sense of? I've had an eight-year-old. You had an eight-year-old. Mm-hmm. Can you just outline that? Mother was overweight, and she was concerned that she would end up like her mother. So she started to restrict at that very early age to the point that she was becoming unhealthy. Just conceptually for a second, because it's very interesting. You use the word constrict and yet binge. They're the opposite ends of the pole. So they're binging. Does that mean they can't constrict? They constrict. They can constrict for a day or two. They can skip breakfast. They can skip lunch. They can set out to just have this small meal and even eat out with a friend and have something like a salad. But they're watching their friends eating something healthier, um, a tuna fish sandwich, a big bowl of soup and a half a sandwich, whatever. They come home and now they're really hungry, so they start eating whatever they have at home. I would imagine for women, this would be a very complex challenge, shall we say, when they're pregnant. Have you ever had the chance of taking a pregnant woman who was a binge eater through the pregnancy? A lot of women whose pregnancy is the time to finally eat all those foods they wanted to eat. So they'll say they'll have dessert all the time or they'll start eating pizza. The last thing you should be eating when you're pregnant is things with a lot of salt like pizza. I'm not saying to never have it, but this is like, oh, I've watched my weight so long, now I'm allowed to have this. So you have women that are normally weighing 120 go up to 160. It's not the best, but it's just not in their mind that cognitive thinking such that, okay, if I know that it takes water 20 minutes to get to my belly, I'm going to drink something but stop because I know it, you know, I'm not feeling that quenched because it just takes time. And I'm not exactly sure how long it takes to get solid food to give you a sense of fullness. So some people learn to say, well, if I have this portion, you know, that portion control that they stress so much, this should be enough. If I'm still hungry in an hour, I can always come back for more. Other people eat with the idea that they don't leave the table till they're feeling satiated. And that's way too much food. 
What I find so interesting is the nitty-gritty detail of having to look at the specifics the way you look at it in patterns, where it comes from, what they want to feel like, self-image issues. And over 3%, I guess between the men and the women, close to 5, 5.5% of our population suffer from it. It's really a very significant clinical concern in our society. I agree. I think we might have less physical issues. For example, diabetes can run in families. Some people are just going to be predisposed to that. You and I both know adolescents that have had to deal with with diabetes without being at all overweight. But for other people, it might come on in later years because of what they're eating and the amount that they're eating. So that we can close with the sense of, shall we say, instructions. If a parent is hearing this and they're concerned and they have a teenage girl or boy, what are we looking for? What, What raises the flag that there's a problem? Food disappearing at night. I had someone say she left like a loaf of bread in the freezer and the loaf of bread was gone. Whatever they have, the person will just eat whatever is there in the in the fridge or the freezer. And not really a sense of openness about doing this. It's more secretive again. Oh, sure. The mom, I'm just using the mom, for example. She might be focused on these are good foods. This is this. She might make a big deal at every meal. Oh, I'm serving you chicken and broccoli tonight. You know, this is a really healthy meal. And the child will then take their allowance and use that to buy cookies or candy because they're not allowed in the house. So mom discovers this, she'll find the wrappers and everything under the child's bed. I must have heard this story dozens of times. And the mother should then appropriately reach out to to begin the process to see if there is a problem. Right, and you have to also work with the mother because I have generation after generation. What you really want to do is to have someone learn. It's okay to have a cup of cookies after dinner. It's okay to have a a scoop of ice cream. You want to have them start teaching more of a balance and not to use food as the reward for either good behaviors or for something that was a stress stress in their life. And the statistic of approximately 5%, that's a lot of people. Roz Malmud is a psychologist in Southeast Florida. She has worked with folks who've had eating disorders for many years, and she was kind enough to take us on a brief overview of a very complex but a very important issue that we need to discuss. Dr. Malmud, thank you so much.